0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economy, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. This episode was brought to you in partnership with the American Bar Association Section of Civil Rights and Social Justice. Created in 1966, the section provides leadership within the ABA and the legal profession in protecting and advancing human rights, civil liberties, and social justice. For more information on the section, visit www.americanbar.org CRSJ.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Stacey Sublet, glad to be here. I'm a senior associate at Beverage and Diamond, and I'm here this afternoon with Ethan Shankman.
0: Hi everyone, I'm Ethan Shankman. I'm an environmental partner at Arnold & Porter. I recently worked with uh, Stacy in the Office of General Counsel at EPA, where I was Deputy General Counsel. I also teach environmental law at Georgetown, uh, and I'm very happy to say that I'm a regular columnist for the Environmental Forum here at the Environmental Law Institute. It's great to be here. So
1: it's been a crazy ride since January 2017, and I feel like I'm back in administrative law, and law in law school. How are you feeling about this? What are you saying?
0: I think you and I have both lived through several transitions and administrations. I was an attorney in the Environment Division at DOJ from the in, in the transition from the Clinton to the Bush administration, and I joined EPA at the very beginning of the Obama administration with you. And whenever there's a change in administration, there's always an effort to take a look back at what the previous um, administration had um, had pursued and to consider changes in direction, changes in policy. But I think what we've seen in the first two years of the Trump administration in the area of environmental natural resources is, is unprecedented in the amount of change um, that, that the new administration has attempted to, to effect and in um, the checks and balances that we've seen uh, being provided by the courts, by the Administrative Procedure Act, um, and by various uh, litigants that we'll talk about um, that have really illustrated the limitations on executive branch authority and the sideboards on the ability of um, executive branch agencies to uh, change course in in policy and in, and in regulations.
1: Well, yeah, to your point, Ethan, actually, yeah, I feel like we're seeing a lot of that activity play out in the federal courts, particularly with the administration's attempts to counter some of the Obama-era regulations. What are you seeing in this respect? What sort of takeaways, major takeaways, are you, are you pulling from these, these crazy cases?
0: The first one that I want to highlight is a decision, in, again in August, by the DC Circuit, which set aside EPA's rule that had delayed implementation of the Clean Air Act's uh, risk management uh, plan program uh, for, for two years. That's the program, the RMP program under Section 112 of the Clean Air Act that regulates safety of chemical plants and similar facilities. Um, in response to a number of high-profile chemical disasters including the the one in 2013 in a West Texas fertilizer plant where 15 people died the Obama administration uh, promulgated a rule towards the end of the administration to bolster uh, the requirements of the uh, risk management uh, program beefing up requirements for emergency response planning investigations audits information disclosure and the like Um, that that new rule issued by the previous administration was was due to take effect in March of 2017. Uh, the Trump administration announced that this was one of the rules that they intended to uh, reconsider. And EPA issued a, a series of orders delaying implementation of the Obama-era rule while they decided how they wanted to reconsider it and what they wanted to uh, change about it. Uh, eventually, in June of 2017, uh, EPA issued a regulation, it actually promulgated a regulation that delayed implementation of the RMP rule by 20 months. And that delay was challenged. It was challenged by a number of environmental groups and a number of states who were focused not so much on the substance of the rule as they were on the ability of executive branch agencies uh, to change positions and in particular to call a timeout on the implementation Of the previous administration's regulation while they tried to figure out what they wanted to do in terms of a a new direction. And the DC Circuit said that EPA acted contrary to law and arbitrary and capriciously in issuing this uh, 20 month delay without going through the necessary regulatory steps that are required under the Administrative, Administrative Procedure Act. The DC Circuit actually said that EPA had made a mockery of the statute um, by issuing mm-hmm. this delay with not without taking into account um, or seeking comment on or building a record uh, to investigate the relative pros and cons of having the new rule um, delayed for that period of time. This was not the only uh, recent decision that has um, addressed the power to delay or power to suspend uh, regulations while a new administration um, figures out what, if any, new direction they want to take. Um, EPA has, and, and other agencies have experienced a number of setbacks in this regard. And I think what this illustrates is it's a lot more difficult for new administrations to change course and change policy direction in light of the Administrative Procedure Act, in light of the courts, and in light of litigants' willingness to use the courts as a check and balance than you might think it is.
1: It sure sounds like it in terms of this, sort of this soap opera going on in our, our federal courts and hearing how the strategy to delay and to create this timeout while the aircraft carrier is changing course. This is really interesting to see play out. So we've looked backwards at Obama-era regulations. What's actually happening with the promises that this administration has made in terms of new regulations? How is that working in terms of the timeline for the APA in a forward-looking sense?
0: right so you know I think the first two years of this administration if it if it's a if if the administration is a drama we the first the first two years were act one Mm -hmm. and act one was all about um, how to how to implement change itself how to call a timeout how to suspend or postpone or delay the effectiveness of the previous administration's rules while the administration decides what new rule it wants to implement to to take their place act two Will, be the, will see take place over the next two years, as um, a number of commitments that this administration has made to promulgate new rules, new substantive rules to take the place of the previous administration's um, policies um, will come due. Um, we're talking about uh, a, a number of big-ticket items, um, a new uh, definition of Waters of the United States, which this administration has said it wants to uh, be uh, um, to be more like Justice Scalia's opinion in in the Rapanos case than Justice Kennedy's opinion. That's one thing that's on their list. Um, A replacement rule for the Clean Power Plan, possibly a new mercury and air toxics standard. Um, There's new standards that need to be issued under the Renewable Fuels Program. Um, There's uh, new standards um, for motor vehicles controlling uh, GHG emissions and uh, regulating uh, fuel efficiency. Um, All of those and more are on the plate for uh, the uh, administration during act two over the next two years. But as you know, Stacy, based on our experience at EPA, the window that that an administration has to get these sorts of major rulemakings done is less than the full, you know, two years that they have remaining uh, in the administration. That at some point, when we get close enough to the next presidential election, typically the executive branch um, decides that it needs to put its pens down, that it's too close to uh, uh, the next election uh, to be uh, doing more major regulations, either because they've basically, um, they've run out of resources, there's a little bit of a regulatory bottleneck, or because they're looking to what may happen Right. in a subsequent administration that could in turn reverse their policies and I think you and I remember well our time at the end of the Obama administration in EPA where we were waiting for um, the signal that we knew would be coming at some point from uh, from either the White House or the, uh, uh, the administration at EPA that it was time to put our pens down um, and stop issuing uh, major rules which we didn't do in every case, but through the tape, <laughs> running Absolutely. through the tape. Um, but there is going to be there is going to be a limited window right. that's considered to be the prime time for getting these major regulatory initiatives um, accomplished. Um, so I'm looking at uh, end of 2019, early 2020 as really the critical time to see if to what extent this administration can deliver on the major regulatory. Uh, commitments that it's made um, and do so within that window where right. they can have their uh, own uh, lawyers at the Justice Department defend those decisions um, and have them uh, litigated in, in court um, during this administration so right. that there's less risk of uh, a subsequent administration, should there be one, uh, reconsidering.
1: Yeah, and I think we really saw that. I mean, the the fourth quarter mentality in the Obama administration and the Obama EPA was definitely tangible in thinking about those last few months as, as we approached the change of administration, but I think also thinking about what we saw in the months right after inauguration with uh, the Congressional Review Act and the CRA and those regs that were sort of a little bit later to the party and how quickly they, that action was reversed. So yeah, that definitely uh, thinking about that, that 2020 deadline and how they're going to work up to that to fulfill some of these promises is really interesting
0: you know so i wanted to mention one other uh, going back to the topic uh, before we move on going mm-hmm. back to the topic of the power of the executive branch to um, call a timeout mm-hmm. on previous administration uh, regulations uh, we've we've learned a number of lessons as this administration has attempted to use a variety of different tools to accomplish that end. Um, and and one particular one that I just wanted to mention that's that's different than what I, I mentioned previously has to do with uh, a recent episode involving uh, regulation of glider kits mm-hmm. um, under the uh, Clean Air Act's... Um, um, motor vehicle, greenhouse gas, and fuel efficiency standards. And, and glider kits are basically rebuilt trucks where manufacturers put new bodies on older uh, diesel engines that have been retooled. And um, this administration announced, you know, towards towards the, the beginning of its administration, that it was reconsidering whether the Clean Air Act regulations pertaining to greenhouse gas emissions and fuel efficiency should apply to uh, glider vehicles. And so they were in the process of reconsidering that. One of the last things that um, Administrator Pruitt did before he left office was issue what's called a no action assurance memo, um, which is a statement, a policy statement issued by uh, uh, the enforcement office at EPA that it will not take enforcement action uh, on a particular regulatory requirement. Um, Fairly unusual to see uh, a no action memo being issued in the context of of a rulemaking process while the agency was reconsidering a rule. That no action uh, letter was immediately challenged by a number of uh, NGOs uh, in the DC circuit, which issued um, a a preliminary injunction or stay of it. Um, During this time, uh, this was exactly the time that that the uh, uh, leadership of EPA transitioned from uh, uh, Scott Pruitt to uh, Wheeler, who who became the acting administrator. And only three weeks after um, Administrator Pruitt issued this no action letter, Acting Administrator Wheeler withdrew it, hmm. uh, rather than rather than defending it through the D.C. Circuit process. And he articulated, you know, as the rationale for withdrawing it that that. Based on longstanding policy, typically no action uh, assurance letters are not issued in the sort of you know in the ordinary course of a rulemaking process while agencies are, are reconsidering rules. So this was this was yet another uh, a different kind of attempt um, mm-hmm. at at calling a timeout uh, while the agency reconsidered that um, that uh, met a premature end before it could be uh, tested in the courts. But I thought it was it, it's interesting to mention. Um, and yet another lesson for, you know, for both this administration and future administrations in this context.
1: Well, Ethan, that actually raises an interesting question, too, about how the Glider case and these other cases with this administration are, are testing some of our traditional procedures and processes. So it begs the question, what's the lasting change of the, this testing? What's, what sort of impacts do we think will come from this administration's? slightly unorthodox testing of our more traditional processes
0: well <clears throat> on on the one hand we've been discussing uh mostly um this administration's attempt attempts to change su- on, on the substance right of uh, of policies mm-hmm. but there's also been a focus during these first two years quite an interesting focus on the rulemaking process itself right uh, which has received um, some pretty significant attention um, from a variety of agencies. So, for example, um, EPA in June issued a notice of proposed rulemaking, where it, an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking where it solicited comment on, on changes it can make to how it considers costs and benefits in the rulemaking process. Mm-hmm. This is separate and apart from any particular program, any particular statute, but just in general. Are there things that EPA can do to improve consistency and transparency in considering the costs and benefits in in the rulemaking process? And uh, EPA solicited comments on issues, for example, uh, going to whether agencies should do more retrospective analysis of the costs and benefits of rules that have been uh, implemented over the years. Um, uh, whether, um, um, Whether the agency should and how it should consider the ancillary benefits of, of rulemakings is another uh, a big issue. Mm-hmm. That's actually one that is um, quite relevant to the mercury and air toxics standard, which regulates emissions of hazardous air pollutants from uh, power plants. And as we know, the Supreme Court um, reversed an Obama-era um, uh, regulation, which um, for failing to consider costs in the context of finding that it was necessary and appropriate to regulate air toxics from power plants. Um, And the Supreme Court sent the case back to EPA to consider costs, but did not specifically tell the agency how to do so. And the agency on remand in the Obama administration redid its necessary and appropriate finding, and. supported you know re- reissued the rule the mercury and air toxics standard and among other things um, when it measured costs and benefits of regulating uh, mercury and uh, other uh, toxics from uh, power plants it looked not only at the benefits of regulating those substances which were the principal focus of the rule but it turns out that the same controls that are necessary to control hazardous air pollution would also result in significant decreases of conventional pollution like particulate matter Hmm. which causes respiratory ailments and and deaths Mm -hmm. um, in you know in a broad uh, swath of society and particularly in particularly in in vulnerable uh, individuals and it is it has been much easier uh, for the agencies to monetize, for to decide how what kind of a dollar value to place on um, control of those kinds of conventional pollutants, right. than it has been for them to monetize the benefits of controlling mercury and and other uh, toxic uh, pollution. But EPA felt that it was appropriate to consider not only the benefits, not only the monetized benefits of the control of the mercury and the toxics, but also the ancillary benefits that society would experience from the incidental uh, uh, improvements mm-hmm. in air quality that that uh, would would be uh, that would result from the uh, decrease in particulate matter and other conventional pollutants that is a that has proven to be a a, a big issue of contention. There's arguments right. on both sides, and that's one. That's an example of an issue that EPA is now taking a very hard look at both in the context of this solicitation of comment on how to engage in cost-benefit analysis, but also in the context of a variety of rules, such as the mercury and air toxic standard.
1: How does this play into, I think, the social cost of carbon issue as well? Is that something that's also on your radar?
0: It is, and the social cost of carbon is is a, a metric that the previous administration used to Monetize the benefits of reducing greenhouse gases that cause that cause uh, uh, global warming and and climate change. To actually put a dollar value on each you know metric ton equivalent of carbon dioxide that's uh, that's reduced in, in the atmosphere, um, and you know this was an important metric in a number of uh, uh, rulemaking efforts. In order to in order to provide information both to the agency and to the regulated community and to the public mm-hmm. as to what the you know what the relative costs and benefits are of of, of regulation um, when the trump administration uh, came into office one of one of the many things they rescinded during the, the very early days was this social cost of carbon metric which they felt was You know, riddled with uncertainty and had a lot of um, methodological flaws, Um, they haven't replaced it with a different metric, Mm -hmm. but we're seeing in a number of rulemakings, um, whether it's the uh, uh, motor vehicle, uh, um, greenhouse gas standards, um, or other um, regulations that deal with with greenhouse gases, we're seeing uh, the administration come up with um, uh, significantly reduced dollar amounts, for each uh uh, metric ton of carbon that is is reduced Mm -hmm. by by the rule and and as a result the costs of the rules of these rules are all of a sudden appearing to be uh much greater relative uh, relative to the benefits now this hasn't been tested in the courts yet and one of the things that i'm i think uh, all of us who practice in this area will be looking for over the next two years is the extent to which um, you know where EPA finally lands um, mm-hmm. in these various rulemakings on the issue of social cost of carbon, uh, or how how to monetize and measure the costs and benefits of a of a rule aimed at reducing greenhouse gases, and the extent to which that cost benefit analysis will will be taken up by the courts mm-hmm. a, as they as they review these regulations, how changes to the rulemaking process itself. Uh, that cut across statutes, cut across programs, um, are actually some of the more significant changes that this administration is considering that could have a lasting effect not on just one particular program or one particular statute, but on uh, the rulemaking process itself. And so that's something that we're we're following very closely. One other thing I'll mention, because it's an example of yet another tool that an executive branch agency has used to try to... Um, change policy direction and that is through the use of issuing um, legal opinion it 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 relates to infrastructure and it relates to uh, infrastructure in the renewable energy sector my example has to do with the migratory bird treaty act uh, which prohibits uh, to to to, to sort of simplify things it prohibits the take of uh, migratory birds and there's long been a controversy uh, and a dispute and divided views among the courts as to whether the prohibition on take is limited to intentional take, as in you know when a poacher or a hunter um, shoots uh, a bird, um, or whether it also extends to incidental take. So that when you have a, a major infrastructure project or uh, you know a, a wind turbine. Um, and there's inadvertent uh, bird mortality associated with that project, power line, Mm -hmm. or construction of a building, Um, is that covered by the prohibition in the Migratory Bird Act? In the the previous administration, uh, the government took the position that yes, it does cover that kind of incidental take, and there were efforts to try to uh, provide guidance to the uh, wind energy and other sectors Um, and uh, explore uh, pathways to a more rational um, uh, permitting process. This administration, um, and and I'm sorry, that culminated at the end of the administration in the solicitor of the Department of the Interior issuing a formal legal opinion, um, providing legal support for that position. This administration um, has reversed position and done so through the issuance of a new legal opinion by the solicitor at Interior, who is now uh, uh, taken over, and who's issued a legal opinion taking a polar opposite uh, view of the law, mm-hmm. uh, which has now been uh, adopted by uh, uh, the wildlife and, and land management agencies. Um, one of the things that will be interesting to see is how durable this tool is for changing positions through issuance of of legal opinions, Uh, the solicitor's new legal opinion has now been challenged in court. It's been challenged by both environmental groups and a number of states, which is going to raise interesting questions about whether it constitutes final agency action, whether it's ripe for review, whether it's something that courts can can, uh, uh, review at at this time, or whether it requires a particular case. but it's also going to uh, uh, it'd be interesting to see whether uh, uh, changing positions through issuance of legal opinions is something that, that will last through administrations, you know, over the years, or whether it's something that can just change again when, you know, if and when we have a subsequent administration, you know, starting in, in 2021, is that something that can be uh, easily reversed? How does that compare? to the other tools that uh, the executive branch uses to um, change policy direction. Do you see any
1: impact from uh, any of the internal memos that the agency has written as well? I know this dips more into DOJ, just thinking back to when Attorney General Sessions issued that uh, internal memo of DOJ about uh, supplemental environmental projects and in terms of directing the course of the agency through internal guidance. Is that something that you see playing a role at all?
0: Well, one thing uh, this administration has expressed skepticism of, and particularly out of the Justice Department, is um, using guidance documents to regulate uh, outside uh, outside of the government, to impose enforceable requirements on regulated entities through the use of guidance documents. That's something that, uh, uh, that uh, this administration has made very clear, that it uh, that it is, is uh, not not supportive of, mm-hmm. and the Justice uh, Department has issued some uh, very strong uh, policy statements um, discouraging agencies from doing anything that you know comes comes close to that. But I do think that with within the federal government, within the executive branch, it continues to be you know a, a necessary tool in 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 the executive branch's toolbox in order to. Um, try to exercise some control and some uniformity among its uh, federal agencies and to make sure that the policy direction that's coming from up top is actually being followed uh, by the agencies and their various departments, and we're seeing this administration issue both issue new guidance documents and rescind guidance from previous administrations, and I think that's something we'll continue to see.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ethan. This has been a wonderful conversation and a great reunion. Look forward to our our next chapter.
0: Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.